so let's come now before our, our Father God in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, on this uh, Palm Sunday, we remember how Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem. The shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There was a, a recognition that he'd come to save them. But within a week, people were calling for him to be crucified. And as he hung on the cross, people mocked him with the words, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Father, we thank you for that great and deliberate act of humility by which we've been saved. We thank you that Jesus was still able to pray on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, we thank you that forgiveness is available to each one of us. And we thank you that as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can enjoy a relationship with you as our Heavenly Father. We are sorry where we continue to, to let you down. And we do pray that you would use our, our mistakes, our weaknesses to teach us, to make us more like Jesus. Father, where we lack his grace, make us gracious. Where we lack his humility, make us humble. Where we lack his compassion, make us compassionate. And as you increase that grace, humility and compassion in us, we pray that you would make us more effective witnesses for you. We pray for all those we know for whom Easter is just a holiday, a chance to eat chocolate. Father, may you use us to point people to Christ this Easter and lead more people to salvation in him. I do thank you for bringing Chris here this evening and for all the work he does through Home for Good as they seek to encourage families to provide loving homes for children in care. And we thank you for all those in this church who are involved in fostering and adoption. Thank you for the desire, the willingness you have given them to look after these vulnerable children. And we pray that you would grant them patience and perseverance and strength in this ministry where they may feel burdened. And help us as a church to support them in that work and to provide a loving environment uh, that these children can feel a part of. We pray that you would call others to join them in that work. Lord, we pray for those in different needs in our church. We do pray for those suffering with ill health, those struggling in their marriages those in stressful work situations, those grieving loved ones. Lord, come to them, we pray, in their vulnerability. Put your loving arm around them. And help us all as a church to minister your grace to one another. And we pray now that you would bless Krish as he comes to speak. We pray that he would speak with the confidence that comes from your Holy Spirit as you seek to build up your church in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chris, over to you. Good evening, everyone. 
It's lovely to see you. Congratulations on the building. I've not properly uh, been here for a service. And uh, it's way better. If you're new to the church, it's way better than it was. It's, it's beautiful. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. Thank you to the church for their support of Home for Good, not just by wrapping around families that are already fostering or adopting. Um, but you, if you watch closely enough of the Home for Good videos, a lot of them were actually set here, uh, either filmed on a green screen in a back room somewhere or, or filmed on the kind of pathway up to the church. So we are very grateful for your ongoing support. It means a lot to us. Um, I want to make this as interactive as possible. Now, don't be afraid. We're only going to talk about Jesus and the Bible and stuff, so uh, you should be on kind of home turf. But just to kind of get you uh, feeling a little bit more relaxed, I I want to show you a picture which I believe is a really helpful visual parable for the gospel. I'll show you hopefully why. Okay, can you see this picture of a shoe? Okay, just with your neighbour, ask them what colour the shoe is and what colour the laces are. Could you have a go at that? See, I'm I'm not going to ask you difficult questions. This is all easy. Um, Someone on this side, tell me what you see. Put your hand up. Martin? Grey. Grey. What's grey? Which is grey? The shoe's grey and the laces? Light turquoise for the laces. Okay, uh, someone on this side, do you see something different? Anyone contest with Martin on the, the colour of the shoe? What a pink shoe and the laces? White. Oh, that's a bit weird, isn't it? it? It should remind you of this picture. Do you remember this one? Okay, hands up if uh, this is a dress that was posted on Amazon. Uh, hands up if you see white and gold. Just nice and high, white and gold. Okay, well, uh, I, I, I don't always tell people this, but it means you're really an Anglican. Because <laughs> they see white dresses and kind of gold stuff everywhere. Uh, blue and black, anybody? Yeah, the real Baptists. <laughs> we see water everywhere. That's how it works. It's a weird concept, isn't it? We're all looking at the same photo, but because of something internal to us, we're processing it differently. Um, I went to see an optician recently and and asked them about this. Um, It was because they were getting a little bit into my personal space. You know, know, opticians do that. I I knew I was in too too close because I could tell what she'd been eating for lunch without her telling me. (laughs) Oranges, you know, could have been worse. So I get out my phone and uh, I ask her to explain, you know, what's going on here. And her best explanation is it's to do with the different distribution of rods and cones on your retina. Uh, We've all got a slightly different distribution. Uh, Other people think it's because your brain is trying to work out what white is or what sunlight is, and it's doing a kind of white balance, if you're good at photography, to kind of offset all the other colours. But for me, it's not a bad parable of what the gospel does to us. You see, because Jesus has come into our lives... Because he's transformed uh, not just our sin and our, our God's record against us, uh, but he's transforming our character. He's transforming our vision, our purpose for being. Um, according to Romans 12, he's renewing our minds, isn't he? His Holy Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus. And that's different if you're not a Christian. Uh, if, you, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, then that's different for you, isn't it? 
And so that means that a Christian and someone who isn't a Christian can look at the same world, the same newspaper headlines, the same set of family circumstances, but because of the gospel, we see it differently. Does that make sense? The gospel doesn't just change what you do on Sundays or what you do with 10% of your time or 10% of your money. The gospel changes everything, doesn't it? So I want to apply that tonight. I want you to think about how the gospel changes the way that you look at a specific picture I'm going to show you in a moment. And when I show you this picture, I'm going to tell you first what most people see. And then I'm going to ask you a really simple question. I'm going to ask you what you think God sees. What does the gospel tell you? What does your understanding of of God tell you? So here we go. This is Robert. Robert is five years old now. And I can't show you Robert's face because Robert is currently in foster care. So we have to protect his identity. In fact, Robert has been in foster care most of his life. And actually, for most of that time, he's been available for adoption. Uh, He's never going back home to mum and dad. Circumstances are pretty bad, and it, it just means he can never go back there. It's not safe for him to go back there. And so Robert is in a little book that you can read if you become an approved adopter. It's called... Be My Parent. It's a really tough book. And if you know someone going through the adoption process, it's a book people kind of need prayer for before they open the book. Because in it are profiles of lots and lots of children that are ready to be adopted. Now, in that book, you get to see Robert's face and you get a little bit of detail, a bit of bio about him. And they want to be honest because we don't want to give people a kind of romanticised view of adoption. If you watch the movies, it always ends well, doesn't it? Little Annie, she's so precocious and lovely, and if she just finds the right billionaire dad, it's all going to work out wonderfully. It's a little bit more complicated than that in real life. And so in Robert's bio, you get a little story about what's going on with him. Robert has something called speech delay, which means he can't communicate in the way that he wants to, which means Robert gets a little bit frustrated when he's at school. And sometimes that works out as difficult to manage behaviour. And his teacher thinks he's great, but still she has to record that he has difficult to manage behaviour. Now, if you're a potential adopter and you're reading about a five-year-old boy who has difficult to manage behaviour and has speech delay, that doesn't tick a lot of boxes for most people coming forward. That's why Robert's been waiting so long to find an adoptive family. He's not the kind of boy that most people are looking for. He has a couple of things against him. One is he's a boy. It's quite hard to find adoptive placements for boys. People think boys are going to be trouble. Um, Because of this difficult-to-manage behaviour, they think, well, if Robert started off in a bad way, it's probably going to get worse. And uh, we know what happens to boys when things get worse. Uh, It's probably going to lead to really tough problems, and therefore Robert is a problem child. In fact, Robert is someone else's problem child. And so people turn the page and they look for a different one. So that's what most people see when they look at Robert. But we don't see Robert like that. Uh, If you're a Christian here tonight, the gospel's changed not just what you do for 10% of your time or 10% of your money, but it's changed the way we look at everything. And that includes Robert. So here's a little game for you. We'll make it competitive if you like. This side versus this side. I don't know if you chose where you sat because you had intelligent people with you. Could be a good night to be sat where you are. Have a little chat. Can you think of three things 
from all your knowledge of the Bible and uh, you know, all the sermons you've listened to, three things that you think God sees when he looks at Robert. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're someone on the journey, have a guess. What do you think the God that we've been singing about tonight might see when he looks at Robert? Okay, off you go. You have a couple of minutes. Some of you are lightning fast and you're done already. So let's give this side of the room a chance to go first. Go for the easy ones. Makes it harder for these guys. Anyone got something that God sees when he looks at Robert? Potential. Potential. Really helpful. Most people look at Robert and they've decided his future based on his past, haven't they? He's had a difficult start in life. He's growing up in care. That means that his life is destined to go in a certain way. But as a Christian, we can't look at anything like that, can we? We believe in something called redemption, don't we? We look back at our past. What do we see? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were, by nature, objects of wrath. But God... But God stepped in, and he's transformed our lives. If God can make something of us, God can make something of anybody, can't he? And so because of that, we can't look at any one circumstance or person without the potential of factoring in God and hope and grace and transformation. Now, be careful. I'm not saying that if a nice Christian family come along and adopt Robert... Uh, it's all going to work out swimmingly. You know, just with a few bedtime stories and some prayers before he goes to sleep, he'll just turn into this perfect child. Um, that, that's not what's going to happen, is it? For a lot of kids in care, 70% of them have experienced physical or sexual violence against them. Stuff like that doesn't go away quickly. You know, for a lot of people, for a lot of us, we know that the, we have ongoing challenges that God doesn't take away from us, but he meets us in our need, doesn't he? And so Robert's life can be better, but it's not going to be happily ever after into the sunset. But with the love of a good family around him, we believe for great things for Robert. Really helpful potential. God sees redemption, possibilities, grace and hope. Fantastic. One, Neil, do you have a response? Team two? Yes, please. God sees, a, God sees his son. That's, a, that's true at a couple of levels. I'm going to save one of them for a bit later. But in one sense, in Ephesians, it talks about God being uh, the father from whom all people derive, uh, you know, the, the, all fathers derive their fatherhood. I think we can definitely say that um, God sees his creation, doesn't he? When God looks at Robert, he sees someone that he made. There are no accidental people on this planet. But my daughter has a mirror in her bedroom. Apparently it's an important thing for a teenager, not just for girls, apparently. Um, but on her mirror, she's got this little text of the Bible. It says, fearfully and wonderfully made. Recognise that? Psalm 139, I love it. And I love the idea that no matter what the press are saying or people on Snapchat or Instagram are saying, that when she looks in the mirror, I want my daughter to know that she's fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know how you feel tonight, but that, that's how God feels about you, isn't it? That you're not an accident. You know, whatever state our bodies are in, God sees you as someone that's fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's true as God looks at Robert. He sees a precious child that he created. Independent of how his own parents feel about him, God says fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't that true? Great, Simon, very good. One all, is there, is there another response? You got, what else you got? 
You're doing well. I did it in an Anglican church the other week, just so you know, they did great. <laughs> you got more? What else does God see when he looks at Robert? Yes, yes, now we're getting theologically profound, thank you. So look, what, someone made in the image of God, that's really important. Look, I brought my phone with me tonight, and if at the end uh, I did bring some uh, hand gel, so you'll be able to shake my hand because I have a bit of a cold, but I don't want to infect anybody. Um, if at the end of the service you would like to see some pictures of my family, I've probably got 10,000 on my phone, okay? And uh, I know this is long trending, so it wouldn't happen here, but imagine someone were to turn their nose up when they saw a picture of my family. Or, or even worse, imagine that one of you guys were to spit on a picture of my family. At one level, it doesn't matter. This is a Samsung Galaxy S7 Edge phone, which some of you know is waterproof to a depth of 30 meters. <laughs> so even if you spit on my phone, no damage done. Okay, and even if you guys in Long Crendon, I know you've got good water up here, imagine you have toxic saliva that gets into the internal workings of my phone. This is an Android phone, which means that all my photos are backed up on the cloud. Okay, so even if you destroy my phone, you haven't made any damage to my pictures. But symbolically, what have you done? You spit on a picture of my family. What does that say about how you feel about my family? So, if Robert is made in the image of God, how we treat him or don't treat him is a measure of how we feel about the God that he images. Isn't that right? It's not just true of Robert, it's true of every other human being that you come into contact with, isn't it? How you treat another human being, whether they are a Christian or not, is a measure of how you feel about the God that we worship. Because every single human being is made in the image of God. That's a very profound and very challenging thought about human responsibility for another person. You're doing great. Two, one, do you have a last thing? Is there a deal breaker? Is there, or, or are these guys going to win it? What have you got? Yeah, come on, mine. Coming back for more. Man looks on the outside, but God looks. Oh, he does. He does. Many people have written Robert off haven't they? They've decided because of his physical or emotional impediments that are stopping him speaking, he's not worth the effort. That is not how God sees. To be honest, most people that are coming forward for adoption in the UK, uh, they're coming because of infertility. That's the major reason that most people come forward. And, and hear this, adoption is a great way to start a family if God doesn't bless you with, with birth children. But when infertility is your driver, what you really, really want is a baby. You don't want a five-year-old with a speech delay. You want a baby. Now, you know, at Home for Good, we'll work with anybody. And if someone really wants to adopt a baby, we'll, we'll talk about ways that that's possible. It's really hard to find um, babies to adopt because babies are snapped up so quickly by people that are coming because of infertility. And we say to couples that are infertile, we say, you know what? A three-year-old needs as many hugs and cuddles and kisses as a baby, and you could be a fantastic family for them. But ultimately, my job at Home for Good is not to find children for families. 
My job is to find families for children. Does that make sense? I'm asking people to step up and be what Robert needs them to be. I'm not asking Robert to fit some kind of romantic dream of what we want him to be. I'm asking people to step up and be what Robert needs him to be. Because Robert has a whole bunch of statistics against him. According to, well, um, we, we have Rupert here. This is Rupert's last engagement for Home for Good. He's been a faithful man, serving us for many years, and we're really grateful for your work. You can meet him at the end, make his day by becoming a, a regular donor, just as a farewell gift to him. He'd love that. Um, Rupert does a lot of work in Bullingdon Prison. Uh, maybe you know it. It's not, it's not far. It's on the way to Bicester, if you kind of drive uh, there from here. 50% of the male prison population in the UK under 25 are young men that have aged out of foster care. Do you hear that? 50%. So, you know, Robert has some pretty difficult statistics against him. Care leavers make up 1% of the population of the UK, but they make up 25% of the homeless population of the UK. In some areas it's 30%, in other areas it's 70% of young women that are involved in sexual exploitation and prostitution. 70% of them are young women that have aged out of foster care. Now you might know that the church nationally is doing some amazing work through people like Rupert in prison. We're doing great work trying to end sexual exploitation. Brilliant. We're doing great work on the streets of, of places like Oxford and Birmingham trying to help with homelessness. But why do we wait until these kids have been through the system, out the other end, hit their 20s? That's when we'll get involved. When Robert just needs a secure family right now, when he's five. So let's not write him off like the world does. Let's look at the heart as God does. I've got two more things to say, and then I want us to open the Bible very briefly for a really difficult passage that I think we'll have some fun with. Firstly, I want, I'm surprised none of you went for it. I, I, I think God loves Robert. Do you think that's a fairly safe place to come from? I don't know. I'm, sometimes I'm controversial. But you think we're okay? God loves Robert. Most famous verse in the world. For God so loved white people from stable and secure families. No. For God so loved the world. There isn't a single person on planet Earth that God doesn't feel loved towards. That doesn't mean that the world has responded as we ought to have done. But God loves the world. And although God loves Robert, I want to tell you something even more. I want to say that God has special attention to Robert. Well, why is that? In the Old Testament, there are three protected categories of people that God says he has particular attention for. Do you remember who they are? Orphans, widows, strangers and refugees. Very good. I think Robert qualifies as an orphan. We never use that word about him because he has living parents and um, many of our churches around the country have families who have had children removed from them. So we don't call these kids orphans. But biblically, he does fit that category. He's not under the protection of his father. Why does God show special attention to the widow, the orphan, and the stranger? Why are they so important to him? Why does God describe himself, as Psalm 68, as a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows and orphans? Surely God loves all people the same. Why does he single out these three groups of people? I don't know if you've um, ever 
come across a scene, an accident, where there are multiple casualties and seen what happens when the paramedics turn up. Do you know what they do? Something called triaging, don't they? Now, if the Queen of England and a homeless person were in the same accident, according to the medical practitioners, they shouldn't look after the most important person first. Who should they look after first? Yes, the most vulnerable person. That's who you prioritize. When God says that he cares for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, he's prioritizing the vulnerable. Not because they're more important, but because they're more vulnerable. And therefore, I want to tell you that God has special attention for Robert. Are you with me? All right, the last thing I want to say. I'm going to get super controversial now. Uh, You need to open your Bibles. You've done very well. You've passed the test. Your theology is impeccable. Most of the places I go, I'm not actually teaching people new theology. I'm just asking people to live their theology. You know what you already believe about Robert, don't you? You know God loves him. You know he's precious. You know he's knit together in his mother's womb. You know he's, he's on God's heart. You don't need any more teaching. You just need to ask, well, what's my response then? But I want to give a, a little bit of another angle. And uh, it's Matthew 25. Verse 31, I'm going to read this to you and then I want you to tell me why this is probably the most controversial passage that I ever preach on. Okay, Why, why would this passage cause hackles to rise uh, from Christians who describe themselves as conservative but also hackles to rise from Christians that describe themselves as progressive? Why does everybody seem to get upset with this passage? Here we go. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. But he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will so say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Why do you think this might be the most controversial passage I ever get 
to speak on. Have a little chat with your neighbour just for a couple of seconds and uh, we'll talk, to, talk again. Okay, what do you think? What do people find controversial, difficult? Go on, Jeff. Yeah, I've heard people tell me, you know what, that Jesus, he really should have read a bit more Paul. <laughs> Jesus might have got the gospel wrong, you know, because this seems to be salvation by works. Now, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm pretty old school on these things. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. So we can't say that this is not the word of God and Jesus got the gospel wrong. And we can't say that Paul got things wrong. There's, I want to argue there's no conflict. Okay? And, and you might as well factor in James at the same time. There's no conflict. Jesus, James, Paul, they're all on the same page. It's all the word of God. And it's all a, a jigsaw puzzle that you can put together. So people are worried this sounds like salvation by works. I, I think one of the, the interesting ways to think about this is to be careful of confusing correlation and causation. Okay? So there is a correlation in this passage between good works and salvation, isn't there? What is the differentiator between those that are welcome to eternal life and those that depart to eternal death? It isn't church attendance. It isn't correct doctrine, okay? It isn't even you haven't committed some terrible crime. You know, you'd have thought Jesus would have said, you know, rapists and murderers, you depart to eternal death. That's not what he says. You failed to act in a compassionate and gracious way. Therefore, depart to eternal punishment. It's a pretty high bar that Jesus is looking for, isn't it? It's a strange way of us thinking about it. So there is a correlation between good works and salvation. But you must be careful not to confuse causation and correlation. Let me show you what I mean. Um, I drive around a lot around the UK's motorways. Uh, have you all noticed those huge wind turbines that you can get? You seen those? Uh, they look like massive Mercedes signs by the size of roads. I don't know how Mercedes got the sponsorship deal. Um, I'd love to see a Skoda one or a, an Audi one. That could be complicated, but uh, could, could be fun. Maybe a, a Jaguar one. or a, Yeah, could, could be nice. Um, have you noticed that the faster that those wind turbines spin, the windier it gets. Have you noticed that? <laughs> it's really weird. Now look, there is a correlation, isn't there, between wind speed and turbine speed. But if you get your correlation wrong and you attribute causation in the wrong way around, you end up saying something stupid. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Proof texts for salvation by grace. Right? For it's by grace we've been saved through faith, the gift of God, so that no one can boast. Not by works. Couldn't say it any more clear. No one is saved by doing good works. Right? That's pure Pauline doctrine. I think it's Jesus' doctrine too. Because if anyone could be saved by doing good works, in the next couple of chapters, Jesus doesn't need to go to the cross. But Jesus goes to the cross precisely so that he could offer forgiveness to the world. But Ephesians 2 verse 10, after that proof text about salvation by grace, what is Ephesians 2 10? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
Oh, Paul, we are talking about good works? They're the anathema of salvation. No, Paul understands there is a correlation between good works and salvation. If you have been saved, if you've received the grace of God, your character, your personality, your life will change. And one of the fruit that God is looking for is mercy and compassion and grace. Put it this way. If you've become a Christian, but your life doesn't look anything like Jesus, maybe you haven't really become a Christian. Does that make sense? So I think in this passage, there are a whole bunch of people that think they're in the kingdom of God. They're surprised, aren't they? Because they think, well, I'm doing the religious thing. You know, I'm, I'm tithing, I'm, I'm, I'm praying. And, and, and Jesus is going, look, you're not acting in compassionate ways. It's not a normal part of your life. You're not saved at all. Now you're going, oh, Chris, it's just one passage. It's just, you know, there it is, Matthew 25. Actually, it's not the only place it turns up, is it? Remember, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? And Jesus goes, look, sorry, I never knew you. So these are pretty scary passages, but why does Jesus tell us about them? The other group of people that get annoyed by this is, are the progressives. Because Jesus talks about heaven and hell, doesn't he? This is the clearest Jesus gets about Judgment Day. Why is Jesus being so stark in his description of heaven and hell? Eternal life and eternal punishment. Well, Jesus is the most loving person on the planet. And so he wants people to be prepared for what's coming. And therefore he's giving them the heads up. It's a bit like in my house. We have a really strong rule uh, for anyone coming to live with us, uh, however old they are, our rule is don't lick the plug sockets. <laughs> it's an important rule. We have a nine-month-old. I don't know why. If there's any charger that's plugged into a socket somewhere, he just wants to take the USB cable and plug it into himself. I don't know whether he thinks he's going to regenerate more energy or something, but strong rules in our house. Do not lick the plug sockets. We have strong warnings about that, not because we're trying to scare the kids, but because we want to warn the kids. We love them too much to leave them unaware. And so Jesus is really clear, isn't he? We need to be ready to face him. We need to put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross for us. We need to allow his Holy Spirit to come and change us and transform us so that we begin to live the life that Jesus called us to. Any other reasons why this might be a controversial passage? Some people are worried that, you know, when Jesus says, these brothers and sisters of mine, he doesn't just mean caring for anybody. He means caring for Christians. Because the only other group of people that people that Jesus called brothers and sisters are other believers. And I say, okay, I can hear what you're saying. Um, maybe. Um, but I still want you to hear the challenge of this. That even if you take this to mean we need to care for Christians... Uh, in a compassionate and caring way, he doesn't just mean inviting other Christians around for Sunday lunch. He says, I was hungry. I was naked. I was in prison. He doesn't just mean, you know, that reciprocal hospitality, you know, that box of chocolates that someone gave to you that you didn't really want, that you give to someone else. He, he doesn't mean that kind of hospitality. He means sacrificial face-to-face -face hospitality with those that are in need. Now, that might mean other Christians. 
Goodness knows that there are Christians around the world in some pretty terrible circumstances and we need to love them and care for them personally. But I want to give you another reason to think he doesn't just mean Christians. Um, Here. Have you seen these two books? Um, Some of you might be thinking of doing an MBA one day. And uh, here, you you could buy this book. This is what they teach you at the Harvard Business School. You could save $100,000, just pay £10.99 and buy that book. It teaches you everything in a Harvard MBA. But someone's come up with another book over here. What they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. That's interesting, isn't it? Because um, between those two books, there must be the whole sum of human knowledge. Just logically thinking, isn't that that right? What they do teach you and what they don't teach you. That's two books. Just read those two books. You never need to read any other book again. Now think about it this way, right? Who does God command you to love? Well, he commands you to love himself. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? Uh, He commands you to love your neighbor. Okay, and who is your neighbor? Uh, Parable of the Good Samaritan, that's kind of... Anyone that might be in need, okay? Um, is there anyone else that God commands you to love? Love your enemies, okay? So you're supposed to love God, love my neighbor, love your enemies. Anyone else? Actually, doesn't that kind of cover everybody? You with me? So even if maybe, and I'm not even convinced of it, Matthew 25 means loving other Christians, I think the strength of Scripture is that we're to show the compassionate grace of God to anybody that's in need. And this isn't a peripheral thing for people that are wired a certain way. This is part of the normal Christian life. In fact, it's so normal, Jesus uses it as the litmus test of whether we're in the kingdom or not. That's how important this stuff is. So what does that mean? Well, I guess I want to leave you with a little challenge. I've talked about all sorts of vulnerable people that God asks us to care for. Widows, definitely. We need to be better at caring for people that are elderly and alone and and that society is very happy to throw away. Um, We need to care for the stranger. Uh, Often that means the refugee. Uh, We live in a time when there are more refugees in the world than there's ever been in human history. It's a huge problem going on. The Syria crisis, seven years on, not, not getting any better. All of those areas matter. But the concern that God's put on my heart and my family's heart is caring for the vulnerable child. Not just because of what happens to them if we don't care for them, but actually for the incredible joy and privilege it is to care for them. So I've got four things and one story, and then we'll close our time together. There are four really practical things that you could do to get involved in the life of vulnerable children. The first is, and I know many families are already doing this in Long Crendon, but I wonder, you might be at a phase in your life where you have some capacity to consider becoming a foster parent or an adoptive parent. And you're doing it not because you're bored or because you need money or because you're lonely, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do for kids in need right now. Most people think that fostering is for poor people and adoption is for infertile people. We're saying that's not a Christian way of looking at it. This is about us stepping up, stepping into the footprints of Jesus, stepping into the character of God who says he's a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows and orphans. So for some of you, that might be a phase in life that you're in. 
Second thing you could do is to stand alongside other people that are doing it. Here's my story for you. You see this little boy here? This is his farewell photo. We had a photo um, to put in his life storybook because this little boy was going to be looked after with his brother in a long-term foster placement. We had him for about nine months, but we wanted a way to say to him that church was an important part of his life, at least while he was with us. And so we could have taken a picture of our building, you know, Cornerstone, we meet in a school, so not that an attractive building. Uh, We could have taken a picture of one of our worship services with the guitars. Mm, I don't think it would have communicated what we wanted to say. And so this is our back garden, and here he is, just receiving a cheer from a group of people that loved him and cared for him. Um, This lady here would love to be a foster parent. She's told me many times, but that's not her circumstance right now. She'd love to be a foster parent, but she can't. So she is an official foster auntie. That means that when he turns up at church, she was the first person to greet him each week. And she'd remember details about his life, what he'd been up to, what he was worried about. Uh, When she went on holiday, she sent him a postcard. Uh, When uh, it was Easter or Christmas, she sent him a gift. She wanted him to know that he was an important person to her. And that's what she became to him. So an official foster auntie. There's a guy just off the frame who's part of Cornerstone. And uh, he's an engineer. And this little boy had ADHD off the scale. So sitting still for the first 17 minutes of our service while everyone's together, that was going to be hard. So with our permission, this engineer would sit next to him and say, OK, what's it going to be today? A, a, a car? A plane? Well, he'd say, I'll have a train today. As an engineer, did you know you can make a picture of a trade last 17 minutes? And so we do these beautiful little diagrams, and we put some of those into this little boy's life history book. But you see what we're saying here? The church, we're not just a bunch of individuals that happen to be singing and listening to preaching together. We're a family, aren't we? We're an extended family. And so as foster and adopted children come into this congregation, what responsibility will you take to be the aunties and uncles and carers for some of these kids? I really want people to speak up about this. I was a Christian for most of my life before I realised how God was so concerned about the vulnerable. I heard a lot about evangelism, a lot about apologetics, but somehow it's like I'd had blinkers on my eyes. I hadn't realised how important it was. If you're still unconvinced, have a little read of Luke's Gospel and look for every time God cares for a vulnerable person. I'll challenge you to get through a whole chapter without finding God's concern for the vulnerable. And the fourth thing you could do, it's a really simple thing. We're a tiny charity with a crazy vision. We want to find a home for every child in the UK that needs one. That's 4,000 kids that need adopting and another 9,000 foster families that need to step forward. Now, that might sound a bit scary, But of churches like yours and churches like Cornerstone, we reckon there's around 15,000 in the UK. How's your maths? I don't need you all to adopt 10 kids. I didn't bring my van with me. I have a van, and uh, it's normally they're my kids that are in there, but uh, I didn't bring one. You can pick up a kid at the end and take them home. It doesn't quite work like that. You know what I need? I just need one new adopting family or one new foster family per church, the rest of the church to wrap around them, and we can meet the entire need right now. 
That'd be so good for the kids. So good for the church. Because we visibly demonstrate the grace of God to a culture that's increasingly sceptical about the God that we worship. But think how good it would be for our nation. Think about the knock-on effects into our prisons, into our homeless population, and into our sex industry. Imagine the difference we could make. So I'm going to ask us to respond now. Could the worship group come back up again? And um, maybe you want to stand up. I'm going to say a little prayer. Why don't we stand together? We're going to sing a pretty dangerous song. It's called Take My Life. And uh, when, we, when we sing a song like that, I, I wonder what we mean. We, which, which bit of our life are we willing to hand over to God? Um, Sunday mornings, Thursday evenings, maybe a few minutes when we wake up in the morning to read our Bible. Actually, we, we're going to sing that we're going to offer God our entire life. I wonder if that means our family life. I wonder if that means some of our dreams and ambitions. So let's sing this prayer and then I'll let's sing this song and I'll close in prayer. Father God, I just want to pray for Robert. He's still waiting for a family. Thank you that when you look at him, you see potential. You see someone of great value that you knit together in his mother's womb. Thank you that you see a part of your wonderful creation. And somehow, Father, thank you that you see Jesus. Lord, help us to remember that whatever we do, for the least of these, we do for you. And so we ask that what we've just sung would be true, Lord, that we would offer you more than just our words. We would offer you more than just our minds. Lord, take our lives, make them instruments of your grace in this world. Lord, as I walked along the road this evening to come into the church, I saw loads of little paper hearts floating down the road. What a lovely picture of what your church is supposed to be in the world. Pouring your love and your grace that you've poured into us, into the lives of those that we meet. Lord, we offer you our lives as worship and our service to you as worship day by day. Open our hearts and our eyes that we might see how we better serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.